Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Peter, the CEO and co-founder of Sisu, and we discuss the process of going through product market fit, creating an open environment that promotes individual creativity, and how even bad products can gain traction if the problem is big enough. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Excellent. Boom. Look at that background. Sisu data. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, our designers went kind of wild with uh, with it. So happy to rep. Yeah, you've got good designers too, by the way. I really enjoyed the website. Oh, nice. Thank you. Yeah, it's a little different than what everyone else is doing. So that was the, that was the goal. Yeah, it was simple. It was easy to understand. I liked it. So we're just going to hang out and talk. So we're recording now, we just do whatever we do. Jake and the team, they edit it up, make us sound amazing. Is that cool with you? That's great. That's awesome. My favorite part of your website is you list your values on there as a company. I think that's amazing. And you go into each one of them and you explain the value. And to me, that's just very different. Most websites don't do that. Nice. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. I think one of the things I've learned a lot from working with, with Ben Horowitz has been a lot of values are kind of what you, it's a lot about what you do, not what you say you do. And we've taken a pretty deliberate approach to, to figuring out, you know, who do we aspire to be through what we do as opposed to just, you know, being customer obsessed, like everyone says, right? Well, we talk about, you know, what, what does it really mean? What, what does success look like uh, for our customers, right? It's like, actually, like, it's really wowing them, right? So even those moments, like, holy cow, I can't believe I can do that. And so instead of saying we're customer obsessed, saying, hey, we, we're, we're into delivering the wow to our customers, that's, that's a more authentic perspective on, on, on who we are. And some of this idea of iterating towards greatness, right? It's like, we're like, oh, being like moving fast and breaking things. That's, that's actually a pretty good one because it's, it's polarizing. But I like to say iteration and it's not just like towards greatness. It's like, you're not there yet. You're never great, but you keep, you keep going there. So, so I appreciate you picked it up because it's something we spend a lot of time on internally. It's something we kind of hold each other accountable on that it, a lot of times values is aspirational or alternatively kind of milk toast statements. And we try to take ones that were really kind of authentically us and kind of reflect the way like we like to work and do things as a team. How does it play out on, on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you like acknowledge team members for like delivering wow or taking ownership? Like how, how do you get that to happen? We, we do a lot actually quite with this. I think part of it is these are kind of values that come up in day-to-day in -day communication, right? So, so if there's say uh, something we ship that, that someone say conceived of as a, as an idea that started off as kind of just a, Hey, wouldn't it be crazy if you could do X for a customer? And they go and ship it and spec it and, and deliver it. You say, hey, you know, kudos to Charles for taking ownership of our outcome and really driving the scene to completion. Um, or similarly, you know, if we screw up, which is common, you know, in a startup, right? You're constantly learning. It's not, oh man, we really screwed up. It's okay. Well, we're iterating towards, you know, this bigger picture, right? We're iterating towards greatness here, right? You know, the goal is to figure out a, the, how to provide the best result quality here. We saw we had a regression. Well, this is part of the iteration key part of iteration is that you learn, right? So it's like, what do we learn from that? And so kind of calling it out in a day-to-day -day basis is important. And also we, every week have a company all hands, we all get together and people actually, you know, call each other out. Someone it's, it's anonymous. And then someone acts as kind of the radio announcer, which especially in um, uh, remote with, with COVID, it's pretty fun because you test out your, your radio voice. So you can say, you know, 
Michi delivered, you know, an amazing customer research session with this user, really delivered wow in terms of synthesizing the results for informing the future of waterfall visualization, yada, yada. Congratulations on Michi for, and, and people kind of go over the top with the, with the voices. And it's kind of, a, it's, it's, it's just kind of like a process that feeds on itself, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like an internal, like fun thing that you guys do and a collection of those creates your culture. Exactly. And I think a big part of this too is, you know, we're in a space where, you know, it's not, there's, there's a lot of kind of, um, like the blueprints aren't just laid out in front of us. And like we're just saying, hey, we're going to build a faster database. Like we need to build a SQL compiler and or parser and compiler and query planner and so on. It's like, there's a lot of iterations from like what Sisu is in terms of the product category that we're building out and functionality and so on. And it's pretty multidisciplinary. And so I think it's really important. One of the most important ones for me is this idea of kind of expressing yourself where you have to have this, this environment where people feel comfortable going out on a limb and kind of being a little bit wacky because at the end of the day, like some of the crazy idea, ideas that end up being some of the most valuable ones. And, um, you know, you're not going to feel comfortable speaking up unless if you're, unless you know that it'll be okay to, you know, say something that's, you know, wrong some part of the time. And also like just kind of by expressing yourself and not being afraid to be a little goofy, like it, it, it really does kind of open up space to be a little more creative in, in terms of everything from, like you said, like the website design to, you know, product design to branding to all the stuff that makes like a company actually work. And that, that, that for me is like one of the most satisfying parts of, of actually um, being part of a, of a rocket ship like CSU. How did you learn that this, these things were important? Yeah, I think part of this, so, you know, I'm, an, I'm like an academic by training. And I think in the lab, like in, in, in research, the whole goal is to, is to basically, you know, make mistakes and, and, and take big swings, right? I always, I always joke that like, you know, if, if you know that research should be successful before doing it, it's not really research, right? And, 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 and I think, <laughs> um, so, so, so in the company perspective, like I wouldn't have left the lab for anything other than, you know, a big swing, like a big audacious swing. And so it's kind of maybe clear to me, or at least it's clear in retrospect that like to take a big swing, you have to have you know, environment people feel supported and, 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 and are, in our, in our nevertheless challenge to be ambitious in the same way that like kind of a lab expects that. And, you know, for me, I view like a company as a way to, you know, take bigger swings by in some sense, taking smaller steps that are grounded in, in, in practice, but it's all about keeping that like bigger picture in mind. And, and I think the, the, the challenge is if you end up with a super kind of like just hierarchical or top down, or even just kind of like super well-defined, non-malleable kind of culture or, or, or perspective on what, who's doing what and when. Like you have to get stuff done. It can't just be like a giant holacracy. But if you, if you kind of stifle that individual creativity and spirit and drive, one, you end up like suppressing a lot of the diversity that makes companies stronger, at least like makes CSU stronger. And then two, like, you know, just like making less valuable steps on a, on a near-term basis towards these bigger objectives. So so I think it's just kind of an extension of the lab model. And, you know, in research, like greatest strength is greatest weakness. Like you're not accountable to anyone, really. <laughs> you know, you have to file some like reports with the National Science Foundation, but they're like basically, you know, you can't fail a report other than not handing it in. Company obviously has a lot more accountability, but you can take some of these ideas around, you know, product development and thinking big and working collaboratively and taking big swings. And, and, and it turns out it scales pretty well as long as you, as long as you make it clear what the metrics for success look like. So you mentioned bigger picture, like what's the ultimate vision for Sisu? Yeah, I mean, great question. For me, the the ultimate biggest picture is organizations today and 
you know, for, for the foreseeable future have access to more data than like ever before in the history of humanity. And yet the tooling for making use of this data on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of, you know, taking the right decision, making the, making the right, taking the right action, whether or not I'm in IT or marketing or sales or product, right? I'm still making all these decisions based on gut, gut feel, right? And, and I'm increasingly evaluated on KPIs, like, you know, if I'm product, I'm gonna look at, you know, engagement and utilization. If I'm marketing, I'm looking at converted leads and, and, and reactivation and churn, um, sales, revenue, so on. Like I have these KPIs, but like there's this huge disconnect between like measuring the KPI and then like the actions I actually take every day. And so, you know, the opportunity is you already have an org chart that's hierarchical, that has KPIs laddering up into like profit and loss. And the question is, how do you use software to help bridge the gap so you can take advantage of all that data, prioritize where people look, and understand what's going on in their businesses based on that data and ultimately be more confident about making the right decisions. And so I view CSU, you know, in the 10 to 20 year range as this, as this kind of uh, technology that allows people to be better at whatever they're doing today on a day-to-day -day basis in their jobs by making maximal use of this insane amount of data, not just in terms of volume, but also the amount of granularity of this data to make maximally informed kind of optimal decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, not by removing the human from the loop, because people are like, I genuinely believe people are creative. It's the kind of individual kind of uh, intellect and ingenuity that makes companies great, but really augments that, that ingenuity by taking a lot of the burden of knowing what's going on, why it's going on, what the set of options in front of you look like at any point in time, and, and letting the humans kind of steer the ship, but, but not have to worry about, you know, the, the speeds and feeds of the engine, you know, at every, at every you know twist and turn yeah no that's i was i was looking through the website trying to build like a, a visual model or like a mental model of of what you guys do and how it helps and it looks like you just connect into a number of data sources and then automatically generate these pretty interesting insights is that accurate or no yeah yeah so 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 kind of going out from the 20 year horizon or you know five five to five to twenty year going up to what we do today i mean you have people uh, trying to run their businesses, constantly change, you know, very dynamic market conditions, especially today with, with you know, what's going on in the macro environment. And they already have KPIs. So, so, so concrete example, Samsung's a, a public customer. They spend about a billion dollars a month on marketing uh, and they're constantly trying to figure out who's upgrading phones, right? Who's buying new phones and new devices and so on. They have a KPI, which is conversion rate for their new devices that are releasing to the market. And what CC does for Samsung is it doesn't replace their marketing team or even their analyst team, but it helps you know, their marketing team and their analyst team understand every week and every day and with every sale, you know, what's driving conversion rate. You know, any number of tools, you know, they've got a data warehouse and visualization and dashboarding tools. They can tell them what's going on. You know, conversion rate is flat or it's up by 1% or down by 1%. What we've built CSU to really excel at is to understand why these metrics are changing. Is it something on a given carrier and a demographic? Is it a demographic in a given region? Is it a region and a carrier? Is it a coupon code, a discount code? There's all these different possibilities. And you know, historically, you just have, hey, I, this is how many units of phones that I sold. But today, when I've got hundreds of, of individual factors attached to every sale and a, you know, hundreds of millions of possible answers to the question, why did conversion rate change? CC Space is an accelerator that helps the analysts understand okay, what's really driving this change? And then the beautiful thing about metrics is they're defined by the business, you know, once a quarter, more likely once a year. 
but the data is constantly changing. And so CSU is sort of this filter that sits on top of all of this data that's already being collected and notifies users not only when their metrics are changing, but when their metrics change in a way that's actionable, that can actually be acted upon to, for example, change conversion rate, or you know, maybe you want to change your campaign or your targeting or so on. Right. So it's really this, it's this, this super tool that tells you why things are changing and, and it helps you understand what to do about it. Interesting. It sounds like I think before what would happen would be the analyst would maybe have a feeling or an, an insight or an idea and they would go check are these, are these things correlated, but there's so many thousands of data points to check if they're correlated and some are correlated, but aren't meaningful. Some are correlated and are meaningful. And so it sounds like it just finds these meaningful correlations and these vast data sets and then orders the insights by the ones that are like most actionable. Yeah, exactly. Actionable. And then also, yeah, meaningful. Right. And there's all these different, there's a whole field of like what's called causal inference where, you know, there's no substitute for like running an AB test. Right. So if I truly believe that, you know, changing my messaging is going to improve conversion rate, for example, I can create a campaign and show that campaign to a set of users and I can go and measure the difference in lift between the old campaign and the new campaign. Like that's the gold standard. But the reality is, and that's kind of what people are, it's kind of what people do all day anyway. If they don't have data, they're like, oh, I'm going to try this new campaign. I'm going to try this new campaign. It's like based on a lot of intuition and gut and a little bit of reading of the metrics. There's no substitute for like actually taking, running an experiment or taking an action. But the reality is if you're already going to be going and changing your campaigns and targeting and spend, or if you're in product changing the way you push users to feature A versus feature B, or you prioritize your roadmap, like there are experiments that occur already on a macro scale, there's, there's hundreds to thousands of these going on within every business unit, within every large scale organization every day anyway. You know, our goal is if we can help nudge the direction which those experiments go to identify the most promising kind of levers to pull in the business by taking advantage of all the data that's being collected and it's increasing collected, you know, in centralized repositories like these cloud warehouses, then you can really move the needle in a, in a huge way that goes beyond just say increasing conversion rate, but ultimately gets us a little closer to this vision of, of informing decisions with data, which is something people talk about a lot, but actually doing it is super hard because as you kind of point out, like the status quo today is I hire a bunch of analysts. They end up spending their time on their most valuable metrics, which are often the lagging indicators as well as the leading indicators. And even inside of like the most, you know, sort of well-funded Silicon Valley organizations, it's not like every line of business operator has an analyst team dedicated to them. Right. It's typically like the C-level or the leadership team will. And then everyone else is like, oh, just go slice and dice yourself. And so, you know, our, 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 our observation is not that you can ever compete with these teams if you were to have enough analysts and enough uh, uh, time to go and dig in. But again, that's not going to be feasible. So you can plug 80% of that gap and deliver net new capabilities when it's just not cost effective at all today. Again, not, not automating the process, say writing ad copy or figuring out what products to run or running the A-B test themselves, but like kind of informing the processes and workflows that people are already doing today throughout the business using the data they already have access to. Just There's this gap in the, in the tools that's just so apparent once you go and talk to enough of these folks. I love it. It's going to be a big company, man. It's growing. <laughs> I'm excited for you. Yeah, it's, that's, that's the bet. That's what got me out of um, the ivory tower. I mean, we kind of worked with a couple, um, and we were fortunately sponsored by a bunch of real, relatively large and advanced you know, tech companies like uh, Facebook and Google and Microsoft and collaborate with these folks. And we're able to kind of, I, I like to view it as you kind of get to see the future when you work with someone like Google. 
But for me, the excitement was, look, there's a whole bunch of people who have perhaps surprisingly massive amount of data that you don't have to be Facebook or Google today to have enough data to do interesting things around, say, causal inference or, or in terms of, you know, customer analytics. And, and, you know, look, the reason why we're all working productive or relatively productive, let's say, in a lot of uh, environments during COVID and this kind of shelter in place scenarios, all this work is being done in SaaS tools anyway, right? And these things are recording more and more of like, like business processes and workflows. And for me, it's like just, like you just feel like there's something wrong in the world when like there's all this like kind of exhaust being generated within these tools. It's all being, it's all landing inside of these warehouses. They're super cheap to store the data now, but like, it's like, wait, why, is, why aren't there better tools for using all of this? And that's like what got me excited was this idea that, you know, yeah, Google has tons of ads data, right? And there's a ton of information on each ad campaign and so on. But like, there's also a ton of information about like mobile device upgrades and about like direct consumer subscriptions and about like mobile product engagement where like you don't have to be like a giant tech company have this data. And in some sense, like the giant tech companies have just solved like the easiest ML problems. So they have all this data in the first place, right? They have billions of people clicking on like search results all day. In contrast, if you have like a thousand analysts spending their time looking at like uh, a BI tool and they have clicks and scrolls and shares and saves, like how do you use all of that data? Because you've got a lot of underlying data, you don't have as many clicks. But like that's the that's like for me the hardest problem in data today is like ranking and relevance for private data. So what was the day like when you decided to found this company? Had you just finished like an academic paper and you're like, this is brilliant, let's commercialize it. <laughs> or how did it go down? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, for me, commercialization is like a means to an end in the sense that I like to view it as every company, and, and almost, I'd say to some extent, this is true of, of research as well. Like there are these huge trends that are bigger than any individual and bigger than any individual project or, or even company. And, and so for me, I've always been excited about data and kind of tech and that it's this almost like way to nudge the future in these giant waves that are, that are happening that are bigger. And, and, and I think over the last, I don't know, five years where I spent my time initially starting as an assistant professor at Stanford was, was kind of looking at this giant wave, which is it's just super cheap to store data. Like it's not free, uh, but especially when you look at human scale data, like there's only like 6 billion odd people on the planet. Like you can store a lot of data per person in a non-creepy, non-PII way <laughs> with, like, with like not a lot of, like it's very, very cheap right? You know, terabytes of storage for like dollars per month, right? So the big question is like, what do we do with all of this stuff? And, and, and for me, like, that was like the big swing, kind of iterating towards greatness. I was like, like literally 2015, the question was, if, if storage was free and compute was free, what would you build? Uh, that's a pretty vague question. It's especially vague for like, a, for like an academic where like academics are very precise and rigorous and so on. But, but basically, I started building out systems that were solving problems that I saw, you know, friends and and folks who were funding us and also just folks who picked up some of the prototypes we were building struggle with when they like had a business metric, had a ton of private data and we're trying to figure out what the heck's going on with this metric. And it was kind of funny because like we had like little professor where like I had written our UI and some of the V0 like uh, prototypes uh, behind this, 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 this project as part of this, this umbrella called Stanford Dawn, which is kind of a machine learning for usable analytics. And, and what happened is, I had seen people pick up the prototypes. We had written a bunch of papers making stuff scale and making it faster and faster. Like, you know, we have this paper where we process like a day's worth of mobile engagement data at Facebook, which is just like enormous data set. And, and I kind of saw the writing on the wall where I could keep being pretty successful working with students who I love, also like building up some of these, you know, prototypes and throwing them over the wall, these big tech companies. But, um, 
there was kind of this bigger opportunity that, that kept me kind of up at night, which was like, what if we don't need to make things run faster, but we're going to make them more usable? And, and, and what if it's not just, again, the Facebooks of the world that have this data, but it's everyone who has a Snowflake cluster who's bought Redshift. If data's free or increasingly close to free to store, then like, it's not just going to be the big tech companies that have these types of problems. Like, how do you make this accessible to everyone else? And after seeing like the last like 10 years of kind of big data systems where people kind of just copied Google and then they, then they like started rebuilding an entire data system, you know, from the ground up, I was like, well, how would you, what if you, what could I do to accelerate the future to sort of get people to the point where like, I think there's a better way to use all of this data, but rather than having to wait for things to trickle down from like Google and from research and so on, like we could actually, I could put like, you know, my time and energy and resources and, and by the way, do it with like an amazing team who's like better than me at all of these different disciplines from design to engineering to product and marketing. Like, like that was really exciting for me where I kind of realized like there's a there there and it's not just a there for the elites. It's like for everyone who has access to the type of data. And I always, I, I am a big believer in like kind of the, the Bezos regret minimization principle. It's like when you're like 70 years old and looking back on your life, like, what do you want to say you did? And, you know, although like getting tenure at Stanford's like, obviously like a pretty cool thing to go and do. And there's some really great people on the faculty. Like, I, you know, I got a long time to live, I think. So, um, you know, this was the thing that I felt was the biggest contribution I could make to kind of nudge the, the, the tides of history and technology, uh, at least in a, what I view as a positive direction. I love how you like academicized my, my understanding of <laughs> Bezos regrets principle. I can't even think of other words now than what you said. That's hilarious. I'm a big fan. Is his book still up there on the wall? Yeah, there it is. The Everything Store. Yeah, it's amazing. He's, I, I, I think he's like just, it, it's phenomenal to see Amazon as a, a product-driven company, right? And see how they continue to reinvent themselves. There's a lot of tech companies. Like I spent a summer uh, working with the Google Cloud team before I started Sisu, trying to scratch the itch of like, hey, how do I have this type of product impact? And it's amazing to see folks like, like Bezos, who's, who's actually not a technologist, you know, develops product after product after product that's successful in market. And I see folks with these great technology, you know, fail to build, you know, product two or product three or product four and, you know, Bezos and Elon Musk and so on. They get a lot of like, I mean, and they, everyone has their flaws, but I just have massive respect for the guy because look, he's, he's just unafraid to continue asking, like, can we do better? No, I'm a huge fan of Bezos and the Muskisms, And I actually you know, read both of their life stories and was super impressed trying to, you know, understand how they think and see the world. And then earlier when you were talking about like the culture and everything, and then the success and scale of Amazon, I was actually thinking last week about this. And I was saying the way that they're, you know, he's got the rocket company, he's got all the different companies, all different organizations, and he's like not even in there. And I heard him in an interview, sorry, I'll put my mic back. I heard him in an interview talk about how he like lives 10 years in the future. And I was like, the only way you could do that is if you somehow at the beginning created such a solid foundation with such a strong culture, which I'm a fan of their culture. I've read their books and know some of their executives. And, and that is the like connecting thread that allows all of that to be possible. It's like, it's, it's inevitable that they're going to go as far as they could possibly go before they're going to get broken up by government entities. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the thing is too, they're willing to say, Hey, we might be wrong. Right. It's like not clinging to sort of the success that they had and say, Hey, you know what? We're just like a, re like, I'm just a, we're just a retail business. Right. As well as saying, Hey, actually we have this really deep competency in, um, 
in running data centers now we can externalize that or or even things like alexa like i don't think they were like a natural language processing shop in the first place they're like hey you know we're gonna go and like put the resource behind this we're like and to be able to investment all the time which is which is which is which makes sense but like to actually say hey, you know what i'm gonna put my money where my mouth is i'm just i'm gonna hire like some of the best natural language processing people and it's gonna cost me i don't know what it's, i don't know how much it costs them a billion dollars you know to build out this team and i'm gonna put my money where my mouth is i'm gonna hire an amazing talent and go from from scratch make that level of investment and commitment and not just say hey it's a one-time like one year thing but like we're gonna pour like i don't know five billion ten billion dollars into something and we might be wrong it's like there's, there's there's some kind of like fire that i think fuels a lot of those decisions but but you do that over and over and over it, it, i think it's more than just like a, a an impulsive type of thing right and obviously there's some success and that success begets success and so on and if all they had were like flops like the fire phone then like maybe at some point it, it would peter out but i think that like the the degree to which both elon musk and and and, and um Jeff Bezos, like go full throttle on, Hey, we're going to go and try and do something huge and it might screw up. And that's why it's worth doing. I think that's a really powerful perspective and, and toward, towards your comments around like the monopoly or getting broken up. I mean, I think that is kind of like the, the positive side of these massive tech conglomerates is like, you know, you can't afford to take way bigger bets. And it's interesting to ask the question, you know, you look at the coffers that Apple has and that Google has and then Amazon has. It's interesting to understand why is it that Amazon is so much more successful introducing more products to market? Well, you know, why is Google still third or fourth, depending on how you count, in cloud? And I think that, that it has to be a cultural element because it's certainly not a capital uh, question. Yes. And, you know, so to, to hit off of something Musk says, he says he talks a lot in his interviews about like reducing the probability of failure. Like when he goes into something and I, I just love how he states it so uh, systematically and simply. But one of the questions that I've had for you in the back of my mind, this, this, this whole interview is, you know, how did you meet the person that would help you on the business side of these things? You, you're extraordinary on the technical side of things. I read your papers. I love it when I don't understand the things I'm reading because that's how I know people are smart. And I'm like, I get the concepts, uh, my, my background software engineering. So I, I know it from like the software engineering perspective. I don't know it from like the academic machine learning perspective, but I'm curious, like at, at what point in this endeavor, did you meet the individual that would help you on the business, uh, like sales growth side of things? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think there's kind of two answers. One's on the, on the one hand, I've been really fortunate to have an amazing network of of advisors in my career. So, you know, back in, in, in undergrad, Margot Seltzer was my first mentor, my first research project I ever did. Um, she did sleepy cat software in Berkeley DB in grad school had Ali Godzi and Jan Stoika, both founders at Databricks as, as co-advisors, as well as Joe Hellerstein, who's co-founder and kind of founding CEO at Trifacta. So I had this kind of like DNA and then uh, of people in my network, we're both like super smart academics, but also gone to the commercial side. I think I think Ali at Databricks is probably one of the most successful crossover folks in recent history. And that you know he really scaled that company from you know a, a successful open source project to basically this you know close to ten billion dollar juggernaut over at Databricks. And it's not because Ali is um, I think Ali does have an MBA, but it's not because Ali has an MBA. It's because uh, he's also got a PhD. It's because he's just a super sharp, you know, high IQ and high EQ individual who, who, who takes this kind of systems thinking about 
historically distributed systems and applies it to the market and applies it to their products and is super involved in both the technology and the product development and the sales and marketing. And I think what I learned from Ali is in, in ultimately, you know, we, we work, end up working with Ben via Ali's, you know, recommendation is that a lot of the challenges in based in terms of getting this idea of product market fit, which is kind of like it, product market fits funny. Cause like no one can really define it. And if you could measure it, like venture capital would be like an entirely less profitable investment category. <laughs> so it's like becoming so too, that's the trend by the way, or at least what I'm seeing. Have you seen the new financing options that exist now, how they're doing it? Where they like, I can, I just did this the other day. I actually plug in like my Stripe and then they'll give you like, you pay like a percent for the money, but it's basically, you can get capital that's non-dilutive and then you just pay like a really small fee and it's, it's automated and easy. We'll talk about data. Yeah. The Stripe, the, the Stripe um, uh, payments system is, is amazing. And cause it, you know, they have this data about an individual business and they, they can make better informed financing than like any conventional, like you don't have to go with your, <laughs> you have to go in with your binder and show it to the bank and say, here's my financials, <laughs> you know, out of these, so on. They're like, no, we, we know your financials, right? So that's like the type of kind of um, acceleration that, that I think is, is, is possible and with, with data. And there's some venture capital firms that are trying to, you know, differentiate on data. It's hard in enterprise when like product market fit is not this like discrete event where like you're like, you wake up one morning and like your app is like the number two thing on the app store and everyone's like inviting their friend. It's like you get to three customers, then you get to 10 customers, then you get to 30, then 100, then a th like it's this like weird non-discrete kind of like uh, step. But, but the net of it is like, I think that process of getting to product market fit, it's like a lot of the discipline and it's kind of the second part of my answer. Like it's similar to what we, what we deal with in like the system side of computer science all the time, which like you have the, like in systems and computer systems, there's like never a unilateral winner, like in algorithm stuff and theory, you can be like, this is this algorithm is like way better. Like don't use like bubble sort, always use quick sort, right? Like you can use asymptotic evaluation. There's no like asymptotics in most computer systems. Like which is the best scheduler to use? Oh, I don't know about? that word. Can you tell me that what that word means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like, okay. So like, um, asymptotic means like as the as the input gets really, really big, right? Uh, which which algorithm is faster, right? You can prove in certain cases that like certain algorithms are better than others. So, for example, like a way to like do sorting that's just really slow but technically correct is I will just randomly permute a list of elements and I can check if it's sorted. And like in expectation, eventually I'll come up with a sorted list. <laughs> In contrast, if I actually go and run like any sorting algorithm, that, that is like provably going to be more efficient, at least in expectation, than randomly, you know, flipping, you know, the order of elements in my list, right? So, so like asymptotically, like I can make firm statements in theory that this algorithm is provably better than this algorithm. It's faster, it's cheaper, and so on. But like in like computer systems, which scheduler should you use? Should you use like the BSD scheduler or like the Linux scheduler, which, both of which have different like properties, right? It's going to depend on the workload. It's depend on the constraints. Like, do you have low latency tasks? Do you have long running tasks? Do you have a mix of these? Like, whenever a system, like as a peer reviewer and like someone who writes, used to write papers for a living, like if a system paper, like about databases or operating systems or distributed systems ever claims, like this is unilaterally better than another system, like chances are it's like a BS claim, right? Because you should always have this qualifier, like under these conditions, this is what when it's better, right? And so I think that like same thinking is, is like, actually very applicable to like bringing a product to market because product market fit on the business side, it's super cool because you're building this product out while you're like having people use it or buying it. 
and you're like charting this course between like, what do people want? What is the addressable market? What is technically feasible? And what can you get done in the limited amount of time you've got? And so like, you can make statements like, well, of course it'd be better if we built feature A and B, but you have these constraints. Like you only have so many people, you only have a certain budget or so on. And so like, for me, the, the intellectually challenging part about helping build a company has been actually on the product and, and marketing side, much more than the tech side, because it's a lot of the same constraints. It's just, you have less information that you do when you're running like an operating system scheduler, because like the whole, you know, OS knows everything about what's going on. Whereas here you have to go out and get data from the customers, but it's very like debugging humans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's hard to debug a human because you can't see into through everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're like, and you're like, Hey, so like, why didn't you buy? Like, what was like, so for us, you know, we don't like, it's kind of funny for the time being when we like, don't do a deal. It's not like, like, you know, there's some other, someone else who does exactly what we do and we like lose it. That's more like people are like, ah, I'm just gonna keep doing like, you know, keep working in dashboards. I won't do anything. Right. But like, even getting that information, like, Hey, like, so why, like, what was it that like turned you off? Is it something about the pricing and packaging? Cause we can probably be flexible on that. Is it something about like, there's not a pain point is it organizational priorities it it like there's this huge constellation of things that have to go right for people to like consume software and the thing i love the most about like the the business side of this is like you know when someone pays for our software like they could be buying like lunches for their team they could buy t-shirts like money is very fun like in academia you just have to assert by fiat you're like this is an important problem you said you read some of these papers like this is a really important like every paper starts with like especially in sense like this is an important problem like let me cite like a few news articles i'm gonna say it's important and then we're gonna like we're gonna say okay great given that we established it's important like the first two paragraphs we'll go and solve some technical problem whereas like it's like the inverse in a, in a, in a tech enabled company like like cc where it's like we have to make sure the problem is important. You, in, in, in teasing that apart, and when things don't go wrong, don't go well, it's it's critical to figure out okay, where's the where's the bottle? You don't have that information. Similarly, when things do go well, you're like, well, great. Like, you know, you want to make sure there's true value there. You don't want to be like, hey, they liked, you know, they liked the salesperson or they liked the demo or whatever. Like, you want to make sure there's like actually something there. And and so when I think about product market fit, there's no good books on this stuff. Like, no one like. Like there's really very few good business books in my opinion. I think the best things like like you kind of talked about are like biographies or even like Ben's books, like Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's basically a biography because you can't describe it, but that's the same type of systems thinking that at least in academia, like was kind of the name of the game, except a lot of times he's kind of brushed under the rug and say, well, this is an important problem. I'm therefore going to like move on to the, to the to what I consider the fun parts or what academics consider the fun parts. No, and I like how you're describing it because we just went through it. And I would say right now we have product market fit. But the path there over the past three years, you know, three years ago, people were asking us about product market fit and we're like, yeah, of course we have it, you know, or or because it's the thing you have to have. But then you go through the experience and you understand it and you get the nuance of it and you see enough customers and you have enough conversations that you start to, if yourself were an AI algorithm, you start to have a, a large enough data set to, to make meaningful uh, insights on. And so for me, what I've kind of differentiated is like, the step before product market fit, if you're taking product literally, is problem market fit. Like mm -hmm. you have to find the problem that people respond to because you have to find that pressure or that pain point that they're willing to spend. And I I call it like spending time, like in a very literal way, like it's like currency. Yeah. If, if they're not willing to spend time with you on the bait that you're hanging out there and dangling in front of them to even explore if what you have behind the curtain is useful. 
then you won't have enough pressure even if you have the best product in the world. You need pressure in the marketplace. You need people to be having a pain point when they're waking up every day, like how can I, you know, I've got 75 analysts and I want to optimize their time and I want to get more work done. You know, whatever that pain point is, so you, you first have to get that problem out there. Then you get this, I, I always like to say like, my visualization, at least internally at the company, is we need a stream of water flowing to even begin to manipulate it or redirect it or do anything with it or grow a crop. And so that stream of water is the people coming into the door from the pain point. They're responding to our emails, totally. setting meetings. And then once we have that, now we can start putting the product in front of them, get the presentation right, figure out, you know, do the win-loss conversations like you described, where we figure out what exactly is the driver behind their their need to purchase for the people who do and don't and then you can sort of like shape and it's a malleable product and uh then you you end up in a market segment because before you swore there was no competitors <laughs> you're completely now you realize you're fighting for this piece of pie on a budgetary level because people always ask were asking me like oh you know who are your competitors i'm like well it, there's Nobody that does the exact technology that we do, but from a budget yeah. level, we compete on budget against these other budgets. And so uh, I actually found that with some of the more amateur investors, they actually didn't like, like that or understand that. And I was like, well, this is how it's happening in practice. Right, right. Well, I think you're, I think you're totally right about this idea that it's problem first, right? And I think the challenge with technologists is that so often it's like, I've got this hammer, like what nails can I nail in? And I think there are some classes of products where you're like, if you're like an order of magnitude, like 10x, 100x faster or better or cheaper in some dimension, like there's probably like a something to do with tech, right? Like, you know, if I give you like a processor that's 100x faster than like current processors, like you'd probably do something with it, even though like, you know, we don't need a faster processor to run Zoom more effectively, right? <laughs> you know, like, like, but you know, maybe you sell the high frequency trading or whatever. But yeah, I think that for technologists in particular, there's this tendency to go for the hammer as opposed to the nail. And, and I think, with a great problem, you know, you can get away with a pretty crappy product if the problem is big enough. And I think that in some sense, that's where a lot of, a lot of companies start expense tracking, for example, like, I don't think like Expensify is like the slickest product I've ever used, but it's like way better than anything I ever had to use back at Stanford with like, you know, whatever Oracle or SAP software people had. And just a huge pain to get reimbursed and so on. And, you know, like, is that great tech? I think it's like, certainly improved over the years, but, but it's ultimately like a problem worth solving. And I think, you know, as a technologist and as someone, you know, with this kind of engineering background like you, it's, I always struggle with this problem, which is like, well, how do I apply like my unique advantage to solve these problems? And what are problems that are real problems, but ones in which like I can materially make that impact where I know there's certain problems I'd love to work on. Like, you know, some of the stuff going on genomics is super interesting, right? Like there's just amazing what people can do with like high throughput, you know, DNA sequencing and so on. But also I realized like a lot of the problems in terms of, you know, mining, as I understand from a naive perspective, when I talk to folks in like the med school, you know, the problems have to do with more like we don't have enough genome sequenced. And once we did have enough genome sequenced, we could go figure out like what are the, you know, things that correlate with cancer. And then we go and solve these problems. And in the meantime, it's like, well, I have one hammer that I know really well, which is make things fast. So like, let me find things that were like, the problem has to do with speed or comprehensiveness or so on but there's a real problem there and I can make that, that, that difference. And that's what I think is like, when you talk about like, what, how did I learn the business side? I think it really comes down to what you've talked about, which is just identifying the problem really well. And then rather than having like a experienced business operator sitting at my side and saying, Hey, we need to do, you know, X, Y, or Z, 
or, or Z, just having kind of the self-awareness to keep asking at every stage and being kind of intellectually honest, like, is this a real pain point for someone? And if it's not, then what other pain points can we solve? And is, is this in the narrowly defined wedge of, of where we want to live in the universe of all things data or not? And if it's not, then just having the discipline to say no. So is, is Ben a part of the company directly or just like an advisor or? Yes, yeah, so, so Ben Horowitz letter series A and is on the board. And, and my goal for that was was kind of to, again, uh, be intellectually honest about where I was coming from as a, as a CEO where, you know, like I I'd scaled like an org of maybe 15 people in my lab at, at Stanford, but I had never built a company, had worked at companies, but never, never, never built a company from scratch. And Ben's kind of like the one really experienced like let's say top five, 10, you know, Midas list investor who's actually built and scaled a company on his own. And I figured from the earliest days, if I could work with someone like that who had like been in the hot seat of running a company and building it out and dealing with the hard things that come up and, and seeing what success and failure looks like, like that would be a unfair advantage to be able to, to, to partner with them at the, at the earliest days. you know? So like literally back in like May, 2018, CC was like me and Ben <laughs> and uh, and he's been super helpful along the way. Like he's a super busy guy, obviously picks picky about where he spends his time, but he's just been like, it's been great because everything from like, Hey, how should I think about this team's like growing, the engineering is growing really fast. How should we think about like, you know, structuring our teams and making sure people, you know, are balancing like velocity with feeling like they get to continue to grow. And how do you manage say uh, an environment where people can continue to, like grow their technical skills and just shipping stuff all the way to like, hey, there's a big fundraise coming up. How do we think about this? So we're like, hey, how here's our here's our revenue numbers. How do these look to you? Where am I missing my blind spot? So on. Like it's just helpful to have someone who's done it. And then also from like, I think one of the things Ben says in his book which is really true. Like one of the hardest parts of I found of, of doing the company is it's like it's like an emotional thing as well. Like keeping yourself in check where you're like, okay, how do I stay like, you know, long-term greedy? <laughs> like keeping, keeping like your like sights on like what the important things are in the long term and not getting too hung up over whatever's going on in the short term both good and bad and, and and kind of just charting that course while also realizing that it's a lot bigger than just you it's about the team and the people who are who, who are along for the ride and are ultimately the ones who are who are moving the thing forward way more than than yourself yeah i like that long-term concept because at first you're focused on like cash cash you have to be stay alive and so you're just doing whatever you can do to, to survive. It's like trying not to drown, right? You're just yeah. kind of like going crazy. But then the moment you get over that and you're like, okay, I have a business that's long-term going to provide me at a minimum steady paycheck so I can live and exist and continue to attempt new tries at growing this thing, right? And so you get to that point and all of a sudden who you're spending your time with the style of people and how they think becomes way more important because you're like, this is going to take a long time. I'm going to be in this for 10 years and I want to be surrounded every day by these people and I want to live in this type of culture. And all of a sudden those things become, you know, very important. I think it's huge. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot of the company is the idea that, you know, it's it, if you stack rank these things, it's like the people are the most important part of the company, right? Because great people, you empower them, you, you give them you know, latitude and the environment where they can be creative and inspired and, you know, run as fast as they want to run and continue to grow. People like are the most important part of this. The people ultimately will build the right product, right? For the market. And, and, and that's like, you know, the product is just appear. <laughs> it's like the collaborative hard work of so many different people going into this from different disciplines. And I love working with people who are, it's so funny. Like, I feel like I've learned more in the last four years or, or sorry, time flies. 
two years of the yes. company than I have in like the last, I don't know, five years of my career, even in academia, just because like I've learned so much from the people around me about how, what actually goes into building a product and building the team and so on. But it's people first, then the product, and then the profits follow from there. Because I think you'll probably say people, incorporate something you said earlier, by people, problem, product, profits, right? Because if you got the people right and you find the right problem and you'll build the right product and then the profits will come from there. And like, you know, the beautiful thing about, the things I love about AWS, for example, is it's like, it is truly this utility. We're able to spin up this business in like two years. We've never bought a server, right? We can, we can change the unit economics many different ways based on what instance types we get and how we process and how we write our code and so on. Such that like, there's so many different ways to scale up a business model in a SaaS-based business today. You see the investors kind of flocking back over to SaaS after realizing like subsidizing brick and mortar goods is like a very hard way to actually achieve escape velocity and, you know, retail and, and uh, transportation and all these companies. But it's like in a SaaS environment, like you can figure out the profits a bunch of different ways. And there's a lot of innovation to be had on the business model front as well. So it's like, it really is get the best people, you know, make sure you're solving the right problem, then build a product that solves that problem. Then, then kind of go. And I know it's like overly simplified and I'm talking from a position of a lot of like privilege and have had a lot of great advisors along the way, but I do think that it, at least in its purest sense, although Silicon Valley is not a perfect meritocracy compared to many other systems I've been a part of, it's, it's very true in that regard that you can get a smart, dedicated, you know, creative group of people together and build something really, really awesome here and unbelievable short amount of time. And, you know, figure out how to build a business around it that, that, that pays people, not only, not only like puts food on the table, but like, you know, changes technology. I love it. My friend, we did it. It is two o'clock. You had a hard stop at two. So I don't want you to, I'm just trying to help keep you on time. No, no, I'm not trying to rush you off. This is great. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm sorry. I got back to back on this. We were doing this thing for this, uh, for GDC actually, which is kind of cool. Um, oh, nice which is uh, not done stuff with gaming, but that's another fun, that's the fun part of being in this thing too. It's like, you know, anyone who has a direct consumer presence has data and you can like work with game companies, which is awesome. But um, no, I really enjoyed the conversation and I appreciate you having me on. This is like a really fun, like just conversation. So I'm, I'm excited to see how it all edits out and so on. Yeah. So, um, thanks for having me on. And, and, and look, it sounds like things are going really well with the, with if you got the Stripe uh, credit and, and yeah. uh, growth. So uh you know, if I can be helpful at all, you know, let me know, but I'm just super excited and appreciate you having me on. It's a really awesome show. You've got like a really impressive group of, um, of people who've been on. I was looking at some of the old episodes and, um, like kind of honored to be included in the bunch. So thank you so much. Awesome. In the meantime, talk, soon. talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks bud. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.